If you would please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. We're going to be in chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 22 to 41. Acts 2, 22 to 41. So after the resurrection that we just heard, read from John's Gospel, Jesus spent 40 days on earth. He spent it with his disciples. He was appearing to them. He was teaching them before his ascension into heaven. And Jesus told the disciples to remain in Jerusalem until they would receive the promised Holy Spirit. And about a week later, during the Jewish festival of Pentecost, which literally means the 50th day, because it was 50 days from the Passover. And if you remember, the Passover was the Last Supper, when Jesus was having, having the first communion with his disciples right before his crucifixion. So the disciples were all together. At this time, there were about 120 of them, and they were all together. And Scripture tells us, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as fire appeared to them and rested on each of one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterances. And the town, the, Jerusalem was filled with pilgrims, with Jews from all over the empire. And they were bewildered because they heard these men, each speaking in their own language, whether they were Medes or Eliamites or from Mesopotamia or for Jew, Judah or, or Rome or Arabia. They heard it all in their language. And whether this was a miracle of speech or a miracle of hearing, that, that's debated. But one thing that is known is they were hearing God's word in their own language. They were hearing the mighty works of God in their language. And they were, the people were amazed. They were perplexed. But some of others mocked them, the disciples. They said they must be drunk. They dismissed them. And Peter begins this first Christian sermon that we'll see by addressing this, by addressing his claim that they were drunk. And he says, it's only nine in the morning. We're not drunk. He says, what this is, is this is a fulfillment of Scripture, fulfillment of the prophet Joel, saying that the Holy Spirit will be poured out on God's people. And he, he ends with this quote from Joel, these powerful words. It says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. While Scripture reading picks up with the rest of Peter's sermon, this first Christian sermon. And then it shows the immediate results of this powerful Holy Spirit-enabled preaching. So hear now the word of the Lord, Acts 2, 22-41. Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God through, did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. 
being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would see one of he would set one of his descendants on the throne he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption this Jesus God raised up and that of that we are all witnesses being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the disciples, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let us pray. Father, we pray for your spirit to be among us just as it was during that Pentecost. Pour out your spirit on us. Because we know without your spirit, we cannot hear from you. I cannot speak your word without your spirit. Pour your spirit on me. And pour your spirit on everyone who hears so that we will hear from you. We will have an encounter with the risen Lord, and we will be changed, each one of us more into the image of our Savior Jesus Christ. In his name and for his power and his glory we pray. Amen. Well, this is a powerful sermon that Peter preached, this first Christian sermon. And it is much as much to us today in 21st century America as it was to the men in Jerusalem, it has as much impact, it speaks to us as much today. And the first thing I, I, I want you to notice about this sermon, notice Peter's boldness. Notice his boldness. Is this the same Peter? Is this the same man who denied Christ three times? Is this the same man who denied that he even knew Jesus to a powerless servant girl? And now, now Peter is preaching to thousands of men in Jerusalem, and he is unapologetically calling them out for crucifying God's Messiah, for crucifying the Lord and the Christ. And this transformation, this transformation in Peter, along with the other disciples, this fact alone, I think, gives us undeniable proof of the reality of the resurrection, the, life power, the life-changing power of the Holy Spirit. I, I couldn't even I, I couldn't even imagine this. This is the thing that spoke most to me. How would these men who are frightened, who are afraid, who are denying uh, denying Christ, all of a sudden boldly proclaim Christ? And not only proclaim him, they all went to their death. They were all martyred. People are not going to die for a lie that they know is a lie. So this this te- is a testimony to the reality of the resurrection. But also notice that the reality of the resurrection is central to the sermon. Without the resurrection, without the historical reality that we celebrate this morning, this Easter morning, we actually celebrate every Lord's Day. 
Without the resurrection, this sermon, this first Christian sermon, is empty. Without the resurrection, Christianity is meaningless. And in this sermon, this first Christian sermon, in these few words, Peter lies out the, in, lays out the entire Christian message. And as a result, as a result, we see 3,000 souls, 3,000 souls come to Christ that day. As of one sermon, one sermon, a church goes from being 120 to over 3,000. Just imagine, that's a 30-fold increase from one sermon. And in this sermon, Peter gives us facts. He gives us three facts, but not just facts. Peter explains the meaning behind these facts. He gives us the significance of these facts. And after he gives us facts, he gives an exhortation. He tells the people, he tells us what we are to do with these facts, how we are to respond to the reality of the resurrection, the reality that he had just proclaimed to us. And the facts are simple. Peter gives the first fact. Jesus died. And he says why Jesus died. And he says who killed Jesus. That's the first fact. The second fact is the resurrection. Jesus was raised from the dead. He tells why Jesus was raised from the dead. But even more than that, he says Jesus must have been raised from the dead. This is what Peter tells us. The third fact is that these two facts change everything. They change everything. Everything that we know about God, everything we know about ourselves, everything we know about how we relate to God, everything is completely upended by these facts and how this specifically applies to us as God's people. And lastly, Peter tells the people what they're to do, how they are to respond to this reality. So this message really is the same for us. Again, 2,000 years later, as it was to the original audience when it was originally preached. And the word is just as urgent to our world today. So first fact, Jesus died. Well, of course Jesus died. This, this would have been obvious, right? These people were in Jerusalem. It happened less than two months earlier in this very city. This was big news. They would have all known that Jesus died. But Peter's not only telling them that Jesus died, but he's telling them why Jesus died. And he's telling them, who killed Jesus? And they're not going to like the answer. Not the answer. Because Peter says you. He says you people that I'm preaching to at this very moment. You are the ones who killed Jesus. And the people can't claim ignorance. They can't say, well, we didn't know what happened to Jesus. We didn't know who Jesus was. It wasn't me. It was the Romans. It was the religious leaders. Peter immediately takes away any excuse that they may have. In verse 22, he says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know. See, what he's saying, he's saying you knew who Jesus was. It was clear who Jesus was. It was clear from his mighty works. It was clear from his miracles. Jesus removed all doubt, all doubt that he was from God. <clears throat> you knew Jesus was from God. You saw him heal the blind, the lame cast out demons, raise the dead, multiply the fishes. Even, even just a few weeks earlier, they saw Lazarus raised from the dead, as we talked about last week. And Peter's saying, you knew who Jesus was, but you didn't care. You didn't care. You were more concerned with what men think rather than what God thinks. You were more afraid of the Pharisees. You were more afraid of the chief priests than you were of God. And because of this, you have no excuse. Peter says explicitly in verse 23, This Jesus you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. <clears throat> but don't think 
that Peter's indictment is limited to the men who were standing before him in first century Jerusalem. Now, now what Peter says, you crucified Jesus, he is pointing to each one of us here today. He is pointing to me. He is saying, we killed Jesus. We crucified Jesus. We are all the lawless men. We have all rebelled against God. We have rebelled against his law. And as such, we are God's enemies. We are all responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. <clears throat> there's a song that we sing, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And there's one line you may remember. It says, It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has, give, has given me life. I know that it is finished. We are the ones who crucified. It was our sin that held him on the cross. Now, when I read, just read verse 23, there was a part that I left out. Verse 23 says, This Jesus, and the part I left out is, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And this part I left out is important. Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. What this means is Jesus wasn't helpless. It wasn't, he wasn't a victim of our treachery. God was very much in control every second. In fact, this was God's plan. This is how he planned to rescue his people. It was through the sacrifice of Christ. See, hundreds of years before Christ was even born, Isaiah wrote the words that Nathan read for us in our Old Testament about the suffering servant. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, we, we have all gone astray. And God could have been perfectly just. He would have been perfectly just to condemn every single one of us to an eternity and the torments of hell. But instead, instead God provided the suffering servant. And it pleased God to lay upon him, to lay upon Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. It pleased him to pierce Christ for our transgressions, to crush Christ for our sins. And the crucifixion, the crucifixion, as horrible as it was, physically horrible, physically torturous as it was, this wasn't the real horror of the cross. The real horror, the one that brought, caused the agony of Gethsemane for Christ, that caused him to be so distressed that he sweated bl drops of blood, and, and Nathan's father, Dr. John Bolt, he can explain to you the physiology that was involved, the, the amount of torment, the amount of stress that a body would be under to sweat blood. Afterwards, ask him. He can explain what was going on there. But it wasn't the physical crucifixion that so terrified Christ. No. The real horror of the cross was that on the cross, Christ absorbed the full, unmitigated wrath of God against the sum total of all the sin of his elect. Just let that sink in. Just one sin. One of those sins would merit the eternal torments of hell. But Christ suffered the cumulative torments of trillions upon trillions upon trillions of sins. And not only did each one of us crucify Christ, but for the Christian, every sin.
that we commit, even the sins that we are committing at this very moment, has contributed to the horror, contributed to the suffering of Christ on the cross. This is why Christ died. The next fact that Peter tells us in this sermon is that Jesus was resurrected. And not only that he was resurrected, that he must be resurrected. In verse 24, Peter says, God raised him up, loosening the pains of death, the fact of the resurrection, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. Not possible for him to be held by death. Why? Why was it not possible for Jesus to be held by death? Well, to give the answer, Peter quotes scripture. Peter quotes Psalm 16, a psalm of David. And the key here is verse 27, where it says, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. And Peter's argument, then, in verses 29 to to 31, is that David cannot be talking about himself in this portion of the psalm. Although the psalm is about David, and applies to David, but this portion does not. And the reason why it can't be about David is because David died. David was buried. They would have known where his tomb was. His tomb was in Jerusalem. It was right among them. They knew where it was. It was not about David. But David also had a promise, a promise from God, a promise that David would forever have a descendant on the throne as king of God's people. And that descendant is Christ. Christ is forever on the throne. So David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is not speaking about himself, but rather he is speaking about Christ. As Peter says in verse 31, he, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So what does this mean? What does it mean that Christ, God's Holy One, did not see corruption? Well, it means that Christ's body did not decay in the grave. It means that death could not hold Christ. See, Jesus was dead. He was really dead. He was in the grave for three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Remember, these were only partial days. He was, he was crucified in the, in the late afternoon on Friday. And he resurrected at sunrise on Sunday. So the, the total probable time was probably only 40 or, or 50 hours. Enough to clearly show that he was dead. Enough to show that he simply didn't swoon or, or pass out, as some tried to say. He was truly dead. But death could not hold Jesus. It's kind of like, uh, I know when we go to my parents' house and go in their swimming pool, they have all these flotation devices. And I always grab the biggest one, and I try to push it underwater so I can stand on Like maybe a big beach ball, I try to push underwater. No matter how hard I push, it's always going to roll, it's going to pop out. Well, that's Jesus. Death could not hold Jesus. He was coming out. Jesus could not be held. So why? Why could death not hold Jesus? Because Jesus was sinless. He was sinless. Scripture tells us that the wages of sin is death. It tells us that death came into the world because of sin. In fact, if you look at the crucifixion in, in John chapter 19, verse 30, it says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, Jesus said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. In the other Gospels, Luke and, and, and Matthew, they also talk about Jesus yielding up his spirit. And why is this important? Because death had no right over him. Jesus would not die unless he voluntarily gave up his spirit. Death had no power over him. He, if he didn't give up his spirit, he would not have died. Again, why is this important? What's important is because the resurrection proves two things. 
It proves for two things. The first thing it proves is that the sacrifice was accepted. As Jesus' sacrifice as our substitute was accepted by God. And the second thing it proves is that Jesus himself was perfectly sinless. And both of these things are essential for our salvation. I remember last week I paid my, my taxes as we're getting close to tax time for uh, North Carolina. And you know, we have a house in North Carolina, so we owe taxes in North Carolina. And I paid online. And when I paid online, I, it, it basically just, I put all my information and I didn't see anything afterwards. And then the day after, I got an email from the tax authority in North Carolina saying that my payment was accepted. It was a confirmation. My money didn't just go off into the ether somewhere. It was accepted. Well, the resurrection is that proof that Jesus' sacrifice for our sin on the cross was accepted. But it's even more than that. See, Jesus' sacrifice as the suffering servant, that only solves part of our problem. It atones for our sin. It removes the penalty that we face for our sin. But that's not our only problem. Not only is our sin a barrier separating us between God, but God requires perfection, moral perfection. The sacrifice removes sin, but we also need the perfect righteousness to come into God's presence. Let me, let me give you an example. Say you wanted to buy a, a, a house. You wanted to get a mortgage for a house. And you'd just gone to college. You went to college and graduate school. And you racked up hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. And now you come out with your degree in philosophy and you have no job opportunities. So not only are you hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt, you also have no job. And you go to the bank and you ask for a loan. They're going to throw you out. No, I'm not giving you a loan. You're not, you don't have no good credit and you don't have a, a job. Well, say the government decides to forgive all your debt. And you no longer have any debt. It's all forgiven. You go again into the bank. You say, look, I have no debt. They say, great, you have no debt. You still have no job. You can't get the loan. Well, you see, Jesus covers, solves both of our needs. The substitutionary telling, took care of our debt. It's gone. Great. But we need Jesus' righteousness. We need that given to us. His, his, his substitutionary death covers the sin debt. His perfectly sinless life gives us the merit, gives us the positive merit that we need to have fellowship with God. So in, in theological terms, this is called double imputation. See, our sin is imputed to Christ. It means it's credit. It's an accounting term. And his righteousness, his perfect merit is imputed to us. It's accounted to us. Think of it as, as a ledger. You had, you had, I had John Albano on one side. It has sin. Infinite. A whole, whole bunch of sin. Has merit in the next column. Zero. No merit. Then next to it has Jesus. Infinite merit. No sin. And what God does is he switches the columns. He switches the names. I get Jesus' righteousness, and Jesus gets my sin and pays for it on the cross. That is the double imputation. And without the resurrection, the resurrection proves that this good news, most amazing news we could hear, it proves that it is possible. So this is the second thing. The third fact that Peter gives us in this sermon is that Christ's death and resurrection, it is a literal game changer for humanity. Take a look at verses 32 and 33. It says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. See, not only does Jesus' death and resurrection give us peace with God, give us escape from the torments of hell, give us the eternal blessings of eternal life in heaven, as great as it is, there are immediate benefits now. We don't have to wait till we die to get those benefits. There are immediate benefits at this moment that are just as amazing. And that is that the Holy Spirit, 
The third person of the Trinity, God himself, is poured out on God's people. And this is just what the original audience were experiencing at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church. My friends, the benefits are just as real today as they were on that day of Pentecost 2,000 years ago. You see, at the moment of regeneration, when by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, a person becomes a new creation in Christ, they are immediately and forever sealed with the Holy Spirit. Again, think about this. This is God himself, the third person of the Trinity. He forever dwells with us and in us. And this dwelling of the Holy Spirit is manifested with gifts. He gives us gifts. There are ordinary gifts and there are extraordinary gifts of the Holy Spirit. The ordinary gifts of, of the Holy Spirit, this means they are given to every single Christian. In different measures, but every single Christian has these ordinary gifts, should show these ordinary gifts. And these are basically a fruit of the Spirit. Listen in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All Christians should have them at different levels and should be striving to increase and to show them in greater and greater amounts. Ordinary gifts are also conviction of sin. When you are a Christian, when you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, you cannot live like everyone else. You cannot sin. The Holy Spirit will not let you sin like that. He will make you miserable. He will convict you of sin, bringing you, driving you to repentance. Also, we will get a, a greater understanding of God's Word. I've mentioned this to many times. Before I was a Christian, I would open the Bible. It made no sense. It might as well have been written in another language. But once I became a believer, with the Holy Spirit opening my eyes, I looked and I think, wow, I still do it. I re- I've read through the Bible multiple times, and every time I open it up, I get something new. The Holy Spirit shows me something new. That is an ordinary gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, there are also extraordinary gifts, and these are not equally distributed. We all get, as Christians, we all get different types of gifts, but they're not equally. The, the ordinary gifts we all get, different amounts, but we all get. These other, these other gifts are given for a purpose, a purpose of service, a purpose of ministry. These are such as the gift of preaching, or the gift of teaching, or the gift of healing, the gift of administration, the gift of hospitality, the gift of generosity. These are given in, in, to different people in different amounts. And there are also miraculous gifts, like we see here, the, the gift of tongues, and the gift of prophecy, and the gift of instantaneous healing. We have the gift of healing now. Those of you who are doctors and veterinarians you, and nurses, you have the gift of healing. But there's also the gift of immediate healing. That was a sign gift. These are sign gifts like tongues and, and prophecy. They were operating for a short amount of time before we had this canon of Scripture. Now we have the canon of Scripture. It's authenticated. We don't need those anymore. That is no longer seen. Not that God doesn't miraculously heal, but we don't have people who can actually touch someone and say, you are healed based on their own word. But all Christians have the Holy Spirit. All Christians have ordinary gifts. All Christians have certain of these extraordinary gifts. Peter then concludes this sermon in verse 36 with this bold proclamation. He says Jesus is both Lord and Christ. This bold proclamation. He is both God in the flesh. He is the the anointed Messiah. He is the Savior. He is the only Savior. But Peter then also confronts his hearers. He, he, he confronts them. He highlights that they are not in a right relationship with him. Even though he is the only Savior, they are not in with him. They are not, they are not in a good relationship with him. Again, highlighting the fact that they had rejected him. They crucified him. Now, is this the way we would do a sermon? Can you imagine? And then he ends. He says, you crucified him. He's ready to go home. 
Is this the way you would end? Is this the way we should end an evangelical sermon? Right? Oftentimes we don't want to offend people. We don't. We want. We want to prophesy the positive. At this point, Peter should have done an altar call. He should have invited the people to to invite Jesus into his into their lives to to close their eyes and you know lift their hands and and say, and, and repeat after them and say a prayer and then assure them that they are now forever saved. But this is not what Peter does. In fact, Peter ends this sermon with leaving his his hearers in a very uncomfortable position. And he just ends. He's ready to walk away. He declares to them that Jesus is God. Jesus is the only way of salvation. And you don't have him. You are against him. You are in trouble. And Peter says, bye. I'm ready to leave. But the Holy Spirit's at work. The Holy Spirit is at work here. And the Holy Spirit is using the faithful preaching of Peter to accomplish his purposes. Look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brother, what shall we do? What shall we do? They were cut to the heart. This got their attention. This is the work in the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit opened their ears, opened their eyes to the truth. And the truth was they were in big trouble. Their truth is that this was Christ and they rejected him. And they are in big trouble. And now, they, now they're in a panic. They have motivation. They want to know what to do. They plead with the disciples. Brothers, what shall we do? You see, unless we understand, unless we understand the dire situation in which each one of us finds ourselves, we will have no, answer, no interest whatsoever in the answer. How many times are, are, you, are you trying to, to witness to someone and they say, okay, if that's good for you, I'm happy for you. But I don't need that. I'm okay. Unless they know their need, unless they know they need, unless they know they are in big trouble, then they're going to ask you. Then they're going to be in panic. They're going to say, give me whatever I can to, to, to help me solve this problem. Brothers, what do we do? See, Peter needs to bring them to the point of conviction and then trust the Holy Spirit. Trust the Holy Spirit will convict them. But sadly, sadly, much of our modern preaching misses this point. And really, if an unconverted person would hear me preach and leave happy, I wasn't faithful. I didn't do my job. If you're unconverted, you should not be happy. You should be very uncomfortable. You should, you should say, I hate what he's saying. I don't believe what he's saying, but not be happy. I wouldn't be faithful. So what is the answer that Peter gives? And here's the exhortation that I was mentioned in the beginning. And we see this in this passage. We hear Peter's answer in verse 38. It says, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, everyone of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now Peter's words may seem a little unexpected to us. Right? I, I would expect Peter to say repent and believe. But he says repent and be baptized. What does this mean? Is, is Peter denying that justification is by faith alone? Is by belief alone? Is he saying that baptism is absolutely necessary for salvation, as some mistakenly get from this passage? And there are some heretical groups that, that actually use this passage to insist that not only is baptism essential for salvation, but it must be in the name of Jesus Christ. Not in the name of the Trinity, not in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we hear in Matthew 28, but only in the name of Jesus. Again, that is heretical groups who say that. No, Peter's not giving a different gospel here. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But rather what Peter is doing here is he's emphasizing different aspects of the gospel based on the unique historical situation addressed 
in the book of Acts. Remember, this is the first church. This is the first believers. This is the first Christian sermon. So repent and believe. They're, they're, they're really two different sides of the same coin. Repentance could be thought of as turning away from sin, turning away from self, where faith is turning toward Jesus, turning toward Christ in faith, in salvation. It's really different sides of the same thing. So I think Peter implies here that repentance is part of this, uh, faith is part of this call to repentance. Repentance is, is, is really what was applicable because he specifically called them out, is you crucified Christ. So he's emphasizing repentance, but faith is still part of that. Faith is also implied in the call to baptism. Again, remember at this point in redemptive history, the identification of God's covenant people, it's changing. Up until this point, God's covenant people had been just one. It was the nation of Israel. And there was a mark of this being part of this covenant people. It was the sign of circumcision. So at this point, the covenant people were one people, the nation of Israel, and the sign was circumcision. But in Acts, there's a transition taking place. God's covenant now is open to all peoples, all nations, not just the Jews. The promises expand. We see this in verse 39, where Peter says, For the promises for you and your children, and for all who are far off, everyone who the Lord has called to himself. So the promise is not just to the Jews, it's to everyone the Lord has called, every tongue, tribe, nation, and to their children. See, what a sign of the old covenant uh, circumstance was, was circumcision, the sign of the new covenant now is baptism. And just as the old covenant included the children of the people in the, in the covenant, the new covenant also includes the children, and they receive the sign of the covenant. And as we, as we know from church history, this was, this was done early. Children were receiving the sign of the covenant, the sign of baptism. But Peter here, by listing baptism, responds to the question, what shall we do? He's not saying that baptism is, is required to be saved. But rather he's saying now the sign is, is baptism is how we identify as God's people. And he's instructing the new believers to receive the sign, to identify, to make it clear to everyone that they are God's people, that they are part of God's new covenant community. This is the New Testament. And, and, and he's also told to use their Holy Spirit-inspired gifts for the service of this community. See, Christians are not saved to be lone wolves. They are saved to be part of the body of Christ, a local body, and they are to serve in his kingdom. So what does this all mean to us here in, in, in Albany, Georgia, Easter morning, 2022? Well, the facts are the same. The exhortation uh, are the same. They apply just as much to us as they did to the first Christians. And the facts are simple. Christ died as a sacrifice for our sin. Christ was raised as proof that that sacrifice was accepted. And Christians are given the Holy Spirit and, and Spirit-inspired gifts for service to the church and for growth and holiness. And the exhortation is this. There is no neutrality. Each one of us must choose. Each one of us is guilty. And each one of us must choose. We must repent and join a covenant community. This means being baptized if we're not baptized. But it also means joining a Bible-believing church where you will worship God, where you will use your Holy Spirit-inspired gifts for the service of God. So this, my friends, this is our application this Easter morning. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do praise you. We thank you, Lord, that we have this message. Lord, we thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit. 
And Father, we pray that you will now send us in the world in boldness to boldly proclaim the truths, the truths that Peter shared with us, the truth that the Holy Spirit has given to us, that Christ has died as a payment for our sins, that Christ was raised as proof that that sacrifice for our sins was accepted by you, and that you have given us the Holy Spirit to be service to your kingdom. And that we are now to go forth and proclaim that to all the people. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.